0: Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve, I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a special presentation, a special TBS presentation.
1: Yes, so we're kind of in between seasons right now, in between seasons 5 and 6. The Mm -hmm. 2020 tennis season has officially started with the ATP Cup, but we want to present a a totally different out-of-time experience.
0: So is this part of season 5 or season 6?
1: Um, it doesn't matter what it is a
0: part of is our ongoing series of standalone episodes we've previously done a partial history of lgbt folks in tennis we've also done a historical episode where we looked at what tennis was like in the pre-open era leading into the open era Mm -hmm. what, what that all was about man if i I just did a terrible job of describing that, but you can go back yeah, and look into the archives.
1: We've got to work on the elevator pitch. <laughs> this episode is about the great legendary Monica Sellis. And rather than being a biography, this is more of a look at how she has been talked about throughout her career. It's a critique. It's a look at how people wrote about her when she was a child, when she was a dominant superstar after her stabbing. And just kind of a reflection on this unique career, something that we have never seen in tennis and won't see again.
0: There's so much to unpack with Monica Salas. And for the purposes of this episode, we're going to be looking at her career through what we think are four distinct eras of her career and her life in general. The first era being between 1988 and 1990, Monica as prodigy and a peculiarity for much of the tennis world the media the second one being her era of dominance that was accompanied by a fair bit of drama some of it of her doing a lot of it having to do with how the press was wild in the way it covered her not knowing what to do or say about Monica Seles the third being the way she was covered during her two and a half year period away from the tour after she was stabbed in Hamburg in 1993 And then the fourth era being what we think of Monica Seles now since her comeback from 1995, starting with the exhibition against uh, Martina Navratilova, heading into the Rogers Cup and then making the final at the U.S. Open into retirement. And so the, the crux of this whole thing is how can we use the way in which Monica was written about and talked about to get a better idea of who she was as a prodigy, her career at large, and what can we then learn from that and make inferences across other eras and generations subsequent to her career in tennis?
1: Like I said before, this is not a comprehensive biography. Some of you listening are Monica Sellis experts and could probably school us. Some of you may know very little about her career. This episode will kind of give you the highlights, some interesting stories, but uh, in a broader sense, we're interested in the evolution of sports media in the way players were talked about then versus now. I'm particularly interested in PC culture and sort of this era of quote-unquote wokeness and how how we talk about players now differently, especially now that social media is so dominant in tennis and in all sports. It's important for me to remember, you know, this is a critique of how Monica Seles was created in the public eye. And what we are doing on this podcast is also contributing to that discourse. I want to be careful to not arrive at an essence of Monica Seles, like of trying to fully understand who she is because we don't know her People are unknowable. People are full of contradictions. And that's what I kind of want to keep in mind through this whole process. What we're looking at is how how Monica Seles as a figure was constructed through these different eras rather than, you know, who she really is.
0: And looking back at these specific moments in time and the way she was covered to get an idea, a better idea of what it was like to be her at those specific times, rather than letting you know who
1: she was. Right. Why did you want to do this episode? This was your idea. <laughs> and I, I have really become very excited about it. But at first, I, w- I was struggling to find like, where, where is the episode? So what brought you to it? I'm, I'm just a genius, James, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been
0: fascinated by Monica Sellers for as long as I've been interested in tennis. As those of you who listen to the show may know, I first started watching tennis in 1994 and that was during Monica's absence. So for the first year and a half of my tennis fandom, Monica was kind of an abstract figure for me. Somebody that I had to learn about and take clues here and there to try and and figure out who she was. And then when she came back, in effect, she wasn't who she was before. So I never really got the full sense of what that Monica was. I still loved watching Monica play, and I found the rest of her career infinitely fascinating. But this was a a way for me to go back and and fill in the blanks a lot for me in my own personal tennis history. And based on our personal interests in how we talk about tennis on the show, it it felt like a a seamless fit to go this route in terms Mm. of situating her career through media narratives, and then being able to extrapolate outwards.
1: Right. Okay, so we have given you the abstract, and now we should get into the meat of the episode.
0: The meat of the episode being these four distinct eras, right? Right. Starting with Monica as a, what would she have been then? A 13-year-old? A 14-year-old in 1988? At this point, a burgeoning prodigy on the WTA tour. She was training at the Nick Bollettieri Academy, and she was just a year
1: away from really making a huge mark in tennis. She was born in Novi Sad, Yugoslavia, which is now part of Serbia. Her family is Hungarian. They are native Hungarian speakers. And Monica was first noticed because she was winning European tournaments. She won the Under 12 Orange Bowl, and that's when she first caught the eye of Nick Bollettieri. So he offered to give her kind of a trial period at the academy. She goes to Florida. She decides to stay with her brother Zoltan, who is also a top junior player for quite a while. After a while, her parents come and join her, and it becomes clear that Monica is a special pupil of Nick Bollettieri. She's hitting with Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, David Wheaton, who at the time are these clearly future stars. You know jim and andre obviously fulfilled that promise like crazy she's
0: training at the academy but she's not playing matches people don't really know who she is she finally still as an amateur makes her first foray onto the wta tour in 1988 in her first tournament she wins her first match in boca raton gets chris everett in the second round and loses and you know folks are like oh this is who she is she's got great talent this is this is definitely somebody to watch. Little did they know that in less than a year she would be making the semifinals of Roland Garros and then finishing nineteen eighty nine as the the world number six player as a fifteen year
1: old. When she first came around, a lot of the coverage is about her unorthodox game. You know, two hands on both sides, her grunts, which were called gauche. Journalists and commentators took every opportunity to make very creative jabs at the grunts. It seems kind of quaint now because uh, watching her matches, it sounds like, oh, okay, that's just like a a regular grunt. It's unique to her, obviously. You know her without seeing her. At the time, it was considered uh, a little wild.
0: But also at the time, you had, and not dissimilar to what we've seen in our time covering tennis, this, what can only be described as sexist, double standard, whereby Jimmy Connors and Andre Agassi were out here grunting up a storm, but they weren't getting nearly the press ink as a 15-year-old Monica Sellis was with respect to this grunting thing. Right, And we've seen that in recent years as well. The likes of Nadal. Nadal has one of the most pronounced grunts that you can imagine in tennis, as do any number of other men, but we only ever hear about it because folks dwell and harp on the alleged
1: high-pitched nature of women's grunting. There are a few threads in the early coverage of Celis. There's the, the grunts, the sort of eccentric nature of her and her family, and her game, which goes along with the sort of almost mysterious Easternness about them, because they were still behind the Iron Curtain at that time, nobody really understood Yugoslavia, and the ethnic and civil tensions going on there and at the same time there was marveling at what she could do on a tennis court.
0: There was a definite othering of Monica Sellis in the early parts of her right. career.
1: The The Sellis family was seen as such a curiosity. You have her father who's a cartoonist who was a triple jumper. Her mother is a computer programmer. Her brother travels with her. The dog Astro. You always hear about Astro who's named after the Jetsons. This whole... They were really kind of a a low-key family, but they were covered as if they are this traveling circus, this entourage that American Western media doesn't really know what to do with or how to talk about. There's a definite similarity
0: between Celis' father and Richard Williams. Yes. Because it's almost as if tennis media knows what to do with the abusive... Father who is absolutely no good for their child's career, right? Like, that's been covered. They know what to do with that. But when you have a tennis parent who is not playing the game as you want them to play, but still maintaining the best interest of their pupil and, and child, that becomes weird. People don't know what to do with that, right? right?
1: And Richard is much more of a self-promoter, I think, or, or a promoter of his girls than Karoe uh, was. But they both seem to love and have the best interests of their children at heart, Richard was a lot more flamboyant. You hear the same stories repeated, of course, setting up nets in a parking lot because there were so few tennis courts in Novi Sad and the private courts were extremely expensive and couldn't get court time, even after she showed her incredible gifts as a player. The... Tom and Jerry illustrations on tennis balls, which is seen as sort of cutesy, but Monica points out that they missed the point that she was playing the cat who was attacking the mouse. And Well, you're telling the stories that people know what it is.
0: Oh, okay. In order to maintain Monica's interest as a very young child playing tennis, her father, the cartoonist, drew her favorite cartoon, Jerry, the mouse, on the tennis balls and told Monica that you are Tom. You need to go and get... All of the Jerrys,
1: essentially. Right. So it's cute, but this is also a young girl who lined up her dolls on the court so she could whack them with tennis balls. There is a ferocity about Monica Seles from a young age that you can see throughout her career and the way that her game is built. The, the game is so aggressive. Well, this goes back to how
0: folks didn't know what to make of her. Mm-hmm. You have this meek child... Right, she's a child when she bursts onto the stage. She's a child when she's a dominant world number one
1: as well. Yeah, a 16-year-old. Yeah,
0: so you have this meek child, this bubbly child, this young woman who is interested in pop culture, who giggles. God forbid she giggles, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so there's a cutesy aspect, and then there's this disconnect between that and what you see on court, this ruthless killer who will take out Chris Everett, in just her fifth tournament on the WTA tour in Houston in 1989 without any fear. She did not fear anybody on court. And so this disconnect between these two identities of Monica Salas, and then you you accompany that with this perceived mysteriousness of the family, the peculiarity of the family, not knowing what to make of them because they were so different from what people knew, Mm -hmm. right? All these things working together to then create this tornado of competing media narratives that serve to really make things difficult for Monica at the top as right. a child. Right.
1: So you have this this thread of the Celices are unusual, they're extremely private, insular, and Monica's game is unorthodox and wild, and you should fix her forehand. And then at the same time, we have legends of the game saying, we need to be scared. Martina Navratilova was still very much a top player at that time in the late 80s and into the early 90s. Martina said that she has the ability to, quote, render all the women on tour extinct. She said this shortly after Steffi Graf won the Golden Slam. This is a woman who had just won five slams in a row. And Martina is looking at Monica and saying, oh, wow, like this is something we haven't seen before. Ted Tingling, who became a kind of friend to Monica in the final years of his life, whom Monica admired very much. He felt that Monica was the first real heir to Suzanne Langlon, who he knew very well. When you relay that story
0: of how Martina felt that she could just wipe out the WTA tour, <laughs> it's kind of at odds with Chrissy after playing her those first couple times saying, well, you know, she could be number one in about five years.
1: Yeah. Chris God, I just love... Ugh, I love how their personalities come through their court styles. Chrissy is so even, so tempered in the way that she plays, and she thinks before she speaks, right? Like, she wasn't—she's not prone to outrageous generalizations like Martina can be. I think a story that encapsulates what we were talking about, these swirling contradictions of who Monica Seles was as a kid, is her 1989 match against Zena Garrison— Roland Garros. It was a controversy at the time. Xena is the top player. Monica's this young upstart. She was 15 at the time. They come on court and the ball kids hand Monica a bouquet of roses. And Monica starts handing out individual flowers to people in the crowd. This is unusual. And then she turns and presents one to Xena Garrison herself. And Xena refuses it and the crowd boos her. Well, she
0: refuses it, and Monica. You can see her gesturing like, "Oh, okay, right. I don't really know what to do here." And then she goes and puts them down. It seemed in that moment when Zena rebuffed her gift of a flower, of a rose, <laughs> that she realized that, "Okay, this is getting away from me here."
1: All right. So this is the third round of rolling arrows, a tournament that Monica will go on to dominate. She beats Zena Garrison easily. You can, I mean, watch the highlights. She's got Zena on her back foot throughout the entire thing. Like, it's it's just incredible how a 15-year-old pushes around Zena Garrison, who is clearly such a beautiful athlete. And Zena was not happy about it. They were not close. They have since reached a, a piece. But at the time, Zena said, it's a bunch of hype. She's just another baseliner. This is after Monica... So wiped her off the court. Monica said, I would accept a flower from her. I didn't want to cause any problems. I didn't know what to do with the flowers and they love flowers here. And so with Monica, sometimes you get the feeling that you're never getting the full story, which I think is true for a lot of people. And you can see how maybe what Monica viewed as just a, a simple off-the-cuff gesture is seen as offensive and outside the the unwritten rules of the game to the other players.
0: But what's at play here is that Monica is clearly a threat to these women. Yes. At 15 years old, she's a threat. And so what's an innocent thing, something like just giving some folks some flowers, is taken as disrespectful. It's taken as who is she? Who does she think she is? This is not the time or the place. We don't like her. Right. And so... Instead of, say, for example, if if Coco Gauff had done that at Wimbledon last year, we're like, oh my God, that's so cute. Her naivete, her newness, she's unblemished by the darkness of professional sports. <laughs> it's so refreshing. There was none of that, right? It's There's this villain coming to upend everything that we know about tennis. Right. And keep in mind that the two darlings of women's tennis, the woman who had carried the tour for the last 15 years and... Uh, and participated in one of the most storied and greatest rivalries in the history of all sport, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett, they were still playing. Where was Monica Seles going to fit into this? Chrissy and Martina were still hanging on. Steffi Graf was fully entrenched as the world number one. And here is this 15-year-old handing out roses (laughs) in the third round of the French Open? Like, what's going on? Mm. I, I think you can definitely see that there was a lot of resistance to Monica Seles... Getting to the throne of women's tennis. Right.
1: So this Roland Garros in 1989 was her debut at a Grand Slam tournament. She reaches the semifinals and loses to Steffi Graf. She came into that tournament 8-1 and one on the year. And her debut on the WTA Tour was auspicious. She won the Virginia Slims of Houston against Chris Evert before Roland Garros that year. You don't see this sort of record very often in tennis. She did not lose in a first round in any tournament until 1990, till she had been on the tour not full-time, but about two years. A story I like that paints Monica in a different light is playing Chris Everett in Chris Everett's final U.S. Open in 1989. They met in the round of 16. Now, Monica had already had a win over Chris and and a loss. And she writes in her autobiography, the first one, that she did not want to be the teenager who kicked Chris Everett out of tennis. And I get that. Everett beats her easily, and as they're leaving the court, the crowd is going crazy, obviously, and Monica raises her hand to wave at the crowd, realizes quickly that they're not cheering for her, and sort of brushes her hand through her hair to recover. And it's so sweet. It's actually a really cute moment because she recovers so fast. It's like, oh, no, never mind.
0: As Monica progresses into being world number one and the dominant force that she is on the WTA tour between 1990 and 1993, one of the, the things that's talked about a lot is her relationship with Nick Bollettieri, her stay at the Academy, how much that influenced her growth, how much that played a, a role in her becoming the player that she was, as opposed to the influence of her father. And the other thing that Bollettieri is linked to Sellis here with is this grunting business. Because folks have often made the point that so many of the prominent grunters in tennis throughout history have come <laughs> from the Boletari Academy and yes. that it
1: cannot be a coincidence. Right, right. Boletari, at the time, in the mid-80s, was not, did not have the profile that he has today. Andre Agassi and Monica Sellis went a long way in creating voluntary as as this legendary tennis figure i've seen the Balateri academy called a gulag which is just wild i don't know if a reporter could get away with using gulag that flippantly now but it was an authoritarian regime (laughs) it was like military the schedule was very rigid monica was unhappy as a small kid 13 years old her parents weren't there. there yet she didn't
0: speak english very well she would start her day at 6 in the morning, hitting for hours, having to go to school, then go hit again. Like This was, this was like boot camp, seven days a week for a 13-year-old. It's a right. tough life. It's not easy.
1: Balateri said the work was never, ever Monica's problem, that she was extremely hardworking. When her parents did arrive, this is where things get a little complicated. Balateri puts them up in an apartment in Bradenton. Monica's going to the Bradenton Academy... She's a scholarship student, so a lot of these rich kids are sort of subsidizing the scholarship students. And it's weird the way that he talks about her in retrospect. There is a falling out. It's weird the way she talks about Indeed. it in retrospect Indeed. as well. So and I, I gotta The truth is in the middle. So in March 1990, we're at a point where it's becoming clear that Monica is going to be a superstar. There's no walking back from this. She is prodigious. She's starting to win tournaments. Her ranking is going up. And the Boletari-Celis partnership dissolves immediately. And nobody knows why. The official story that I've heard reported in Sports Illustrated is that the Celises were mad that Boletari was spending too much time with other students. In Monica's first autobiography, she's nearly silent about it. She said, Nick loves to communicate through letters. He wrote us a letter and basically kicked us out of the academy. Period, and that was it. She did not provide any context at all. But then Balateri offers his own version of what happened mm-hmm.
0: in his book, and it's it's clear that he goes to great detail to give you detail that cannot be refuted, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. He wants you to know this is what
1: happened. Right. He said Papa Cellus was not a tolerant man. He said he was paranoid. He was private. He demanded that tarps be erected around Monica's practice courts. He had, allegedly, extensive demands. He said the Celices were by far the most demanding family he had ever worked with. So in March of 1990, according to Nick Balateri, Caroy gives him a list of eight, 18 questions. <laughs> this is so specific. 18 questions for Nick to answer and he needs his response immediately or else they can no longer work together.
0: Balateri also tells this story that Papa Celis wanted this rope installed in one of the indoor facilities so that Monica could hang from it parallel to the ground yes. to build her core strength like, or something. Kind of like what Serena did with like, you know, when she was the, doing the, the a- aerial or but whatever. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Nick says it cost how many thousand dollars to get installed? and that Monica never used it. And And, he he said it's still there. It's still there, yeah. And so he wants you to know that there were all these demands constantly made that he filled that weren't always needed, and then the Celices eventually just left him high and dry. That's the long and short of it. Right, right. He says that they left him high and dry, and they say something different.
1: Right. Well, we do know, because Monica said this as well, that they worked without a contract for years. And... This is when the relationship broke down, is when Boletari pressed them to put something in writing to formalize the relationship. Karoi did not respond, allegedly. And Nick said, we can't work together anymore if you're not going to commit. And so reading both accounts, they're both unsatisfactory. <laughs> you know you know the truth is is somewhere out there. We don't know who's closer to the truth. All we know is that Balateri and Celis did reconcile later on, and they they seem to be in a good place. Monica thanked him at her Hall of Fame ceremony. They've come a long way because in the 90s, the Sellers family line was that Nick was never really her coach, he didn't really contribute that much to her game, and it was just convenient.
0: Meanwhile, you have this 15, 16-year-old girl who is at the center of all of this. The center of this controversy, this drama with Boletari, that's playing out in public. She's about to become the biggest tennis star in the world. And she's being made to answer for the decisions of her father, really, at that point. Okay. And so in 1990, it's a it's a fascinating time in women's tennis because Monica is clearly the heir apparent to a still very young Steffi Graf. How does Steffi feel about that? But... Not great, Bob. <laughs> at the same time, in 1990, Jennifer Capriati is the one who is captivating the tennis world. hmm And it's Capriati who is dominating the headlines, allowing Celis to somehow kind of develop under the radar, under a kind of a diminished spotlight. Right.
1: Dominating headlines in the United States, at least. Correct. Which was, in many ways, the epicenter of a lot of tennis, especially hardcore tennis. And it's where many of these women trained. The LA Times in 1990 said that Capriati-Celis
0: is, quote, the rivalry of the future. Other papers cite the massive star power of both players and open emotion of Capriati and Celis. Capriati being the relatable American girl, and Celis the Garbo-esque,
1: charismatic enigma. Garbo-esque is something that you see quite a lot. What do they mean by that? Garbo, Greta Garbo, the great movie star of the 30s, was reclusive, mysterious. She had this air, this enigmatic presence about her. She was fascinating, because of what she hid from you. And Monica, in many ways, embodied that and played it up knowingly. She would, for for different reasons, would appear in public in disguises and wigs. And and there were some theatrical moments in, in Monica's early career, which we'll see in a little while. But there was something undeniably electric about Celis and Capriati.
0: I wanted you to talk about that Garbo-esque aspect there because... I wanted you to situate that in 1990, at the start of her career, because Mm. that's going to loom large when Celis is off the tour after the stabbing. Indeed, yes. Because the media has created this narrative surrounding Monica Celis as this mysterious, unknowable person who is deliberately keeping information about herself and her game from the media. Right? She's playing this coy tit for tat business. Right. And they then become very sinister they being the media, in how they they use that to speak awful things about Monica while she's recovering from her stabbing in 1993.
1: Yeah, yeah. Where are we on the tennis court in early 1990? Monica is putting together a historic season. She wins six straight tournaments, starting with Key Biscayne, which of course we now know as Miami, San Antonio, Tampa, the Italian Open in Rome, Berlin, she beat Steffi Graf for the first time and her first Grand Slam title at Roland Garros. Six tournaments in a row. Then she wins Virginia Slims of LA, Virginia Slims of California, and for the Virginia Slims Championships, which we can now liken to uh, the year-end championships, the WTA finals. And there were so many firsts, there were so many records set in 1990 in those early years She was the youngest in the open era to win a major singles title at Roland Garros, and the youngest since Lottie Dodd did it in like 1701. She was the youngest ever winner of the Virginia Slims Championships. She played the first five-set women's match since 1901. Not the first best of five, but the first that actually went five sets versus Sabatini. And at the time, in early 1991, she became the youngest number one in history. At 17 years and a few months, soon to be surpassed in several of these records by Martina Hingis. But that brings us into what we see as kind of the next era of Monica Sella's discourse, which is the dominant, mysterious, drama-filled th- era. The starlet. So kind of like 1990 to 93, if you will. You talked about Monica's
0: breakthrough 1990 season that starts... This second era that we've been talking about, the 1990 French Open, that win, establishes Monica as a true star. By the time we get to 1991, she wins the Australian Open, wins the French Open, and she's well and truly world number one. She is that player, Mm -hmm. right? Like she is squarely at the top of the game. And with that, folks need to know what to make of her. And we see time and again that folks struggle with that. There's this starlet business. We see so much ink being spilled about the fact that Monica liked Madonna, which in 1991, as a 17-year-old, how is that surprising that she would like Madonna? (laughs) Why is that interesting even? That she wanted to be an actress, that she wanted to go to Hollywood. These are whimsical things that young people think about. Hell, when I was was a teenager, I thought I was going to be a singer. I can't hold a, can't oh. hold a note oh, girl. to save my life. You romanticize Hollywood and fame and all this stuff. And you think, I'm going to be the next big star. And so when Monica is winning hundreds of thousands of dollars at tennis matches, making millions in endorsements, like the
1: world is literally her oyster. Mm-hmm. Like she can do anything she wants. So why not dream big? And she has parents who are telling her, you know what? Play tennis for as long as you want. And if it's not fun anymore, don't play anymore. That is so, so different than so many of the tennis parents of her peers. There was an obsession with her hairstyles and her hair colors changing frequently.
0: Uh, Again, something that is totally normal right, for teenagers right. to want to do. But
1: there was this charisma that Monica had and this candor. It's, it's weird because it's candor mixed with these varying episodes of extreme privacy. And and reclusiveness. But uh, I think, you know, growing up in the era of the Williams sisters and and where we are now, we're used to that. We're used to tennis players wanting to be celebrities in other ways, having fashion lines, doing commercials, having even reality shows. But this was still kind of new when Celis was an 18, 19 year old.
0: Venus and Serena did those things. Monica only talked about doing those things and it set things. And it was
1: a scandal.
0: It's crazy. Jeanette Howard, she writes that Celis insisted on near-total control while reserving her right to act unpredictably.
1: Mm. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, let's get into the episode of her career that explains that most clearly. The 1991 Wimbledon withdrawal and her subsequent reappearance in New Jersey. This, I gotta say, is absolutely insane by the standards of any era in tennis. This is wild. This is one instance where the press was probably within its right to cover it sensationally, because you got the sense that Celis hmm, not invited it, but did contribute a bit to the whole bizarro nature of it.
0: Uh, I disagree, but okay. continue. Okay,
1: The facts are that after winning Roland Garros... Monica Seles kind of disappeared from the public eye for a few weeks. There was rampant speculation about her participation in Wimbledon. She was dealing with shin splints. We know that she was injured, but the press at the time didn't know or didn't believe that she was injured. She didn't really make any statements until shortly before the tournament, because as she says in her book, she really really wanted to play, she was holding out hope that she'd be able to play, and did not make a withdrawal announcement. Till the 11th hour. Till like three days before the tournament started. The traditional tennis press sees this as a great disrespect. Meanwhile, we
0: see this all the time now. We've come to accept that folks should give themselves as much time as possible to play these tournaments.
1: Mm -hmm. And so Monica does pull out of Wimbledon. But the media is going absolutely wild with these accusations. Many of them very unkind. They speculate that she is taking advantage of this weird glitch in the ranking system whereby she can retain her number one ranking by not playing. And
0: that would be important because if she maintained the number one ranking through the end of Wimbledon, she would have been able to cash in a bonus. Right. So much of the negative stuff and the speculation that we see about Monica during this time, and especially during her time away because of the stabbing, is this sinister... A speculation
1: that she's doing things for money. Which is, yeah, which is weird to me. Because the Monica we know now, we understand that that, that's probably not her at all. And she already had so much money. The other speculation was that she was pregnant. Which, of course, if you're a young girl and you behave strangely, people are going to assume you're just pregnant. But
0: it has more to do with the media's obsession with Monica's physical appearance Mm. and weight as well. Because she had apparently put on a few pounds as well at that time. And so what do they write about? They need to find Mm. a way to be able to talk about
1: that. Right. So I love this. So her agent, Stephanie Tolleson, tells Monica behind the scenes, you have to say something. At least let me tell them you're not pregnant. Monica bites back. Who says I'm not?
0: (laughs) This comes from Monica in her first autobiography.
1: (laughs) Meanwhile... The WTA fines her $6,000 for pulling out. Bud Collins allegedly said on air that Monica should be banned from the tour for 1 year for pulling out of Wimbledon without citing a specific reason. This is scandalous at the time what she did. Jerry Smith, who was the executive director of the WTA, was sent to investigate because there was a, such this air of mystery of what was going on with our number 1 player. He was Satisfied with the conversation, but he did levy an additional $20,000 fine because she played an unsanctioned exhibition in Mawa, New Jersey, which is where the bizarreness comes in, in my defense. We get to New Jersey, the shin splints are better, she's able to compete, she accepts this big guarantee, $350,000, which now would probably be in the millions for someone of her stature, and the press is wild. She appears at this press conference before the exhibition. In the press conference, she waves around
0: a t-shirt. And on that t-shirt, it's printed, Rome, Paris, Wimbledon. Wimbledon is crossed out and mawa <laughs> In her autobiography, she says that she had no idea that that's what the t-shirt said. That there was another t-shirt that she was given before and then this one was switched out. And if she had known that that's what it said, she would never have done it. And Who knows? <sighs> I think what is at play here is that Monica being the fluent English speaker in her family and the one who's really running the ship has a lot on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. Like she wants to maintain this childhood that she's had to sacrifice so much of to get where she is and enjoy her life, dabble in new things, change her hair, all this stuff. Meanwhile, running the enterprise of Monica Seles. She's the one who's out here very early in her career, booking tickets to travel, making hotel reservations, because she's the only one who speaks English, right? Like, she was doing that from the age of 13. uh,
1: To be fair, Zoltan uh, spoke English better than her, apparently. But she, she took ownership of her career as a child, basically. My point is, she's trying to live her life as
0: a teenager, run her career as an adult without the skills needed in totality to be able to do that to satisfy the public. Like she did not know anything about public relations. She knew about what she wanted to do as a 16, 17-year-old. Right, And there was also this business of maintaining family privacy, which was obviously something that was
1: learned from her parents at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And in large part for safety, or for the perceived need for security. And the media makes
0: fun It's not an exaggeration to say that they make fun of her for that.
1: Even, I mean, even after the stabbing, they make fun of her for that. But Mm. we do see at least a better contextualization of that almost paranoid need for security from the Salas family.
0: Well, I'm glad you said almost paranoid because that's exactly how it was described. It was. And I always took, well, I say always now in doing the research for this episode, I really took offense to that Mm -hmm. because somebody's own perception of their own security and safety is their own business right it's not for you to tell them whether it's paranoia or not
1: right especially when you grew up in a place like yugoslavia where monica's grandfather was persecuted by nazis where you know things are just quite a bit different than growing up in the united states they may have had good reason to feel unsafe. They got death threats. Like right. that is not something that is mm-hmm. unknown. That is that was known
0: to folks. As a teenager.
1: And it was consistent death threats. But back to
0: the Wimbledon withdrawal. The undercurrent of all of it and the tone from all the writing is there was something nefarious here. And where Monica's PR skills and her inability to let Stephanie Tollison and IMG or whoever handle this better because she wanted her privacy where that failed was it seems that she was actually injured she was she was wait wait wait. she was actually injured michael Mushaw, he was doing underground reporting at wimbledon at the time and if you read his book which is a collection of short stories that he's written throughout his career it's called add in add out collected tennis articles of michael Mushaw, 1982 to 2015 there is a story in there, an anecdote, where at the 1991 French Open, Monica had been hitting with uh, Barami. And Monica's dad wanted him to come on on board and, and coach her on a more full-time basis. And he was like, no, 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 I'm still out here making some money from exhibitions. I'm going to keep doing that while I can. But Michael Musha was talking to him. And he was talking to him about, you know, going forward, Wimbledon, the prospect of getting the, the calendar year Grand Slam. And he was like, well, you know, I think it's doable if she plays Wimbledon. And Michael Michaud was like, what do you mean if? And Barami was like, well, uh, probably shouldn't have said that. But <laughs> Monica's been, to quote the, the contemporary tennis parlance, extremely injured at the French Open with all manner of foot troubles. And so this is something she was legitimately going through, but for whatever reason, be it the need to maintain her own privacy, which is not something that we would blink twice about now, I don't think. If How many times do we see players give an excuse for withdrawing from a tournament? We're like, okay, well, like, we know it's bogus, but you- okay, but then also... If it's real, it's real. You know, like, we don't second-guess that stuff anymore.
1: I think we have a
0: better leeway that we give to players with respect to privacy and
1: and injury. Yes. You could argue that Monica Sellis set the blueprint for Serena Williams in that foot injury in 2010 that still nobody knows what happened, right?
0: In a lot of ways, she went through all of this stuff so that folks could come afterward and
1: um, not have to go through what she went through. Getting back to this incident... As part of this incident, she also staged kind of this photo op with her in a disguise, (laughs) wearing a wig, wearing this bright red lipstick. I am positing that she did have a little bit of fun with it. That in this incident, you see all of the contradictions of Monica Mm Sellis. Not that it's nefarious, but that the, the press at the time, when they were allowed to speculate, assumed the absolute worst about her. So she wasn't being entirely honest or entirely transparent at the time she didn't believe that was her responsibility she's not the president she wasn't a politician or and she didn't answer to a board of directors she was a tennis player and as a kid she it took her a little while to realize the the expectations and I think once she did understand the expectations of the media she pushed back and had a little fun at times
0: what I take away from this whole situation is just how much the media in tennis and especially tennis because and women's tennis because it's a sport that skews so much younger and especially back then where a lot of the top players their prime was in their teenage years you had the tennis press dealing with these kids as if they were adults Mm, mm -hmm. and i think this puts that into perspective perfectly
1: and also dealing with monica in her third language
0: Like, you expect these these teenagers, these kids to behave a certain way as if you're asking Michael Jordan what it was like to break John Stockton's
1: legs in that
0: final, (laughs) (laughs) you know, against the Utah Jazz, Mm. you know.
1: Like, that's a grown-ass man. Well, they're like, well, how would I behave in this situation? Well, that's not a fair question because I'm from the U.S. I'm 30-something years old. I have all this experience under my belt. I went to college. Like, a lot of these kids... Didn't even finish their education. Like, this is an unusual life that they live. If at 35 I come into $7
0: million, what would I do? Would I make <laughs> responsible choices? i
1: probably make a damn fool of myself. We're saying.
0: mocking kids at 15, 16 years old for the choices they make when they have newfound fame and celebrity and money. And are these huge global icons mm. for the very first time at yeah. such a young age. It's... It, it's strange to me. And so all this is wrapped up in what it was to be Monica Selesa at the time. It's not a unique experience to her. There were those who went before who experienced it at a, a much smaller scale. But Monica was really ushered in that era, I feel, as being the the tennis, the young tennis star growing up in the paparazzi age where celebrity media was exploding. Mm-hmm. And she did not have social media to get her own version of things out there. We talk a lot on this show about how much current tennis players actually need tennis press. Do they need to maintain their image through traditional tennis media? Or do they not care about it anymore because they can just go on Instagram or Snapchat and connect with their fans directly? Monica Seles didn't have that. Part of her coming of age was dealing with this new celebrity paparazzi era without any kind of real immediate pushback to connect with folks. right? And I wonder how much different it would have been for her back then if she was able to, in the middle of the night, just do an Insta story or a live stream and say, hey, look, my foot's in a, it's in a cast, can't play, sorry. 10 seconds, that would have been the end of
1: it. (laughs) Not saying she would have, but the opportunity wasn't there. In keeping with controversy of those years of dominance, let's talk briefly about grunting because it is... Something that always pops up when you talk about Monica. I will say that the grunting controversy did elicit some sparkling, beautiful prose written by reporters. Really, no, I really, I'm not being sarcastic. (laughs) Curry Kirkpatrick of Sports Illustrated describes the grunt as, quote, a bewildering array of guttural yowls that seem to vary in timbre according to the situation. Ted Tinling himself said Monica used to sound like a Christmas goose being strangled to death, but she's gotten much better.
0: This grunting controversy that you're talking about happened at the 1992 Wimbledon, correct?
1: It, it came to a head. It was boiling. Ted Tingling was dead at that time, but it, uh, it blew up, really, when Monica was the dominant player on the WTA.
0: At that time, she had won the last five slams that she had entered. 91 Australian, French, missed Wimbledon, 91 US Open, 92 Australian Open, 92 French Open, gotten (laughs) to Wimbledon in 92 with the opportunity to go for the calendar year Grand Slam Mm. this time around, where she wasn't able to the year before because of the injury. And so she had an absolute target on her back at this tournament. And the obvious target for folks to go at her when they couldn't beat her on the court was with the grunting issue.
1: Right. A British tabloid reporter allegedly, created this gruntometer. Gruntometer? Let's go with gruntometer. I I don't know how it should be pronounced, because it's a made-up word. This was basically an instrument that measured a decibel level. And reporters would have this in the stands at Celis Matches. Apparently, her grunt measured at 82 decibels, which has since been far surpassed by Azarenka and Sharapova. And she claims in her book that she thought it was funny. At first... And then it just went on and on and on and on throughout that fortnight. In the quarterfinals, Natalie Toziot repeatedly complained to the umpire about the noise, claiming that it was a hindrance, and the umpire warned Monica that she had to tone it down because it could be considered a hindrance.
0: Natalie Toziot, not for nothing, was not known as Miss Congeniality
1: Girl. in the locker room. And we'll get to another Monica Salas theme in a bit, but Monica rips her apart in her autobiography, as much as Monica does anyone, really. She accuses Tozia of using any means necessary to beat her. She said, quote, she was given an opportunity by the tabloids to break my concentration. Monica wins, faces Martina Navratilova in the semifinals, who also complained to the umpire, and made some comments that Monica couldn't quite hear, but we think that she compared Monica's noises to a grunting pig being slaughtered in a butcher shop which i have to ask why would a pig ever be alive when it's being slaughtered in a butcher shop you're thinking way too much about
0: this (laughs) but it it is pretty much confirmed martina did say that Oh, okay and she apologized for it afterwards
1: she did she came up to monica in the uh what in the hallway the corridors or whatever because
0: martina was impressed first monica was waiting to come in and on her way out martina stopped her and said listen you probably heard i said this at this point i'm really sorry That was way out of line and kudos to to Martina for saying that because, you know, a lot of these women out here, not just in tennis, but in life and young men and boys, everybody, let's just say everybody, everybody in this life don't have the, you know, the the chutzpah Mm -hmm. and the integrity to own up to something when they're when they've done wrong.
1: Yeah, Martina apologized. Monica obviously holds great affection for Martina to this day, the way she talks about her. This is another trait that you can see throughout the Cellus life cycle, is that when she doesn't like somebody, it is extremely clear. And when somebody has earned her loyalty, they they do not lose it. Gabby Sabatini, Monica calls her a great lady multiple times in both of her memoirs.
0: Well, Martina was also incredibly kind to Monica during her absence from the tour.
1: Yeah, so reportedly... In the final against Steffi Graf, this is 92 Wimbledon, Monica tried very hard to tamp down on the grunts, and she was, if you can see in the replay, she was a shadow of herself. Graf was obviously the superior grass player, but Monica did not really show up to that match. In 1992, The Globe and Mail, which is a Toronto newspaper, said the most loathsome treatment of a woman athlete by the media belonged to Monica Sellis. Because of the press obsession with the cut and color of her hair, the persistent obsession with everything Monica Seles, gruntometers, and finally something so egregious that I don't think would happen in 2019. The question: Are you obsessed with butter? Are you addicted to butter?
0: Imagine it was written about so many times. It's it's wild. Mm. Yeah, Madonna, Suzanne Longlong, movies, and butter.
1: You actually hear this a lot with Martina Navratilova's early years in the late 1970s, coming to the United States, getting addicted to McDonald's and, and potato chips and all this shit. Uh, a player from an Eastern communist state coming to the United States and not being able to control herself as far as eating. It's tiresome. Or it something that I, I realized that I want to throw out there. It may not be right, but over the past decade, there's been this move toward reflexivity in the media. Um, You can call it PC culture. You can call it wokeness. You can call it censorship even. But there are a lot of things that the press cannot say or if they do say will be met with a lot of pushback from social media, especially. I know a lot of people like to say this is a bad thing, but would a woman tennis player be spoken about in this way in 2019 when Serena Williams is faced with offensive questions those questions are shouted down reporters have frequently apologized on twitter for the way they've conducted themselves in press conferences that stuff did not happen like that reflexivity that feedback loop did not exist in 1992 and so i would argue that that's something that has changed completely
0: well i think also because we don't have that many people covering the tour Mm -hmm. on a regular basis yes a lot of the folks that we read were tennis beat writers during that time who are being paid to go to these tournaments. That doesn't happen anymore. So the only person I can really think of in a in a North American sense is Christopher Cleary. Like if Christopher Cleary had asked something like that, yeah, it would have been a, a problem. I think in this day and age, mm-hmm. but we just don't right. have the opportunity for that to happen. I do think that the media is still very capable. Yes,
1: yes. But there is a feedback loop that did not exist in 92. Like the immediacy of criticism Mm -hmm. that reporters face is new, relatively. Yes. In the same way that Monica
0: isn't able to control the narrative of her career and her life the way that she could in a social media age, she isn't able to be protected from that setting Mm -hmm. because it's not there.
1: Right, right. And again, at the same time, in this era of dominance... There are these constant critiques, but there's also awe, absolute awe, in what she's able to do on a tennis court. And at some point, it does almost rise to the level of Serena, Roger, Evert. This, really, the question of, can anyone beat this person? Can anyone stop this run of dominance?
0: And what it distills to is her mental toughness. In this second era, the main thing that's written about with Monica Salas It's not just her shots, it's not just her winning, it's the fact that her will is unbreakable. That she will will herself to win in any situation. And that is something that, unfortunately, seems to change post-stabbing.
1: Right. If you did not live through this era as a tennis fan, and I did not, some of these stats are unbelievable. In Monica's first 14 Grand Slams that she played, she won 8. How? Like, how is that possible? That's not something you will ever see replicated, I don't think. She was already a five-time Grand Slam champion at 18. Chris Evert marveled at her mental will. Martina Navratilova, like I said before, said that she could render the tour extinct. Press basically credited Monica for ushering Martina out of the game, which is not entirely true, but you hear... People say things like that. I mean, she was 34, 35 <laughs> years old, still a top 10 player. Right, like, right. Come on. It's like people talk about Federer now. It's like, oh my God, he's losing it. It's like, dude, he is 38 years old. Why I think folks talked
0: about her mental strength and harped on it a lot was because it it was what made her pass the eye test. Mm-hmm. Yes, she had the, the powerful strokes. She had actually great variety in her shots. She could hit any shot, even though she had two hands on both both wings she didn't have the biggest serve but she placed it well it was deep enough when you watch monica play against some of these players the score wasn't always a blitz she wasn't always blowing people off the court a lot of the people that she was beating they could hang with her for bits and the majority of a match but in the end monica was it's like she was a dog with a rope that you can't get rid of it You know, you can't wrest the rope from the dog's mouth. They're just not going to let it go. That's what it was to play Monica at that time. She had all the talent, but we know so many players have all the talent. And in a sport like tennis, you lose so many times. You can lose all the time. You can wake up and have a bad day. Your game isn't going to be enough to carry to the finish line every day. But
1: Monica had that extra something during that time. So in the middle of this historic run of dominance putting together seasons that rival some of the best seasons in the history of tennis, everything changes. In April 1993, she goes to Hamburg to play a clay court tournament in her quarterfinal against Magdalena Maleva. On a changeover, she is stabbed in the back by a person named Gunter Pasch with a 12-centimeter boning knife. She lunges forward and misses really what if could have been a catastrophic blow to her back. The knife hits under her shoulder blade, millimeters away from her spine. Parsh is tackled by spectators before he can wind up and take another shot at her. And this sport, all sports perhaps, are changed forever.
0: There aren't enough words. There aren't the proper words to put this one incident into proper context for all sport, not just tennis. It's... We sat with this episode for well over a month doing research and all that did so much reading and I still I can't fathom what it must have been like to go through that to fathom what it was like to try and recover from that to fathom what it was like to watch the media react to you going
1: through that it was it's indescribable Mm -hmm. truly it's uh it's difficult to understand even now you know, more than 25 years out from it, it's hard to talk about. And, you know, I didn't even live through it as a fan. I didn't know what was happening when I was a kid. So we don't want to dwell on the incident itself, but more of the fallout.
0: Mm-hmm. Because Monica is so much more than this incident. Right. And even though one of the things that is lamented most about this incident in how it changed tennis history is what Monica's place in that history could have been had this not happened... And that is undeniable. <laughs> There's no way we will ever know what could have been. And that's obviously something that Monica has had to live with. And maybe she has made her peace with it. And so mm-hmm. why are we here, you know, still having that burden? Right. We don't want that to to be the overriding narrative looking back at Monica's career with mm. this episode mm. because her contributions to the sport were so great And her determination and her doggedness and her fight and her talent still shone so brightly upon her return to the tour till the time that she retired.
1: Just a few things that I wanted to point out, because I I feel like a lot of the context has been lost in all these years, is that initially it was thought that the stabbing was related to the turmoil that was going on in Yugoslavia. In Germany at the time, there were ethnically motivated attacks against ethnic Serbs in Germany and several different cities. This was read in the context of anti-immigration hysteria in Germany at the time. She, as we said, had been receiving death threats for two years. There was a bomb threat at Wimbledon, and you can see this in the context of the Sellis family's need, as I said earlier, almost paranoid, but you can see that this need for security and privacy was actually well-founded. The fact that they put this six foot or 10 foot stucco wall around their compound in Florida that was behind two locked gates, maybe that need for security had some re- like realistic underpinnings. And so this event, when you're very exposed, but you're, you're at your workplace, you're doing what you love, and you're attacked, how how does that leave you as an athlete who already had fears for her safety before this happened? Which was
0: probably manifested in her trying to distance herself from the political conflicts in Yugoslavia at the time.
1: Right. She is from a Serbian area of Yugoslavia, but she is ethnically Hungarian. She's a Hungarian speaker. But Serbs in Germany took this cause on. They protested outside of her hospital room in support of Monica. They were very upset that the tournament went on which is something...
0: That's man, another discussion to have. Wow. The,
1: <laughs> the fact that this tournament in Hamburg continued in the context of the stabbing, the fact that this person who did it was a Steffi Graf fanatic. She continued. It must have been, obviously, I, we can't even imagine what it was like for a Steffi to be in that situation. But his, his purpose was to punish Monica Sellis for overtaking Steffi Graf to remove her from the number one position. And the incredibly tragic thing is that he was successful. He did that. Steffi Graf won the next four majors. She became a 22-time Grand Slam winner. And, of course, we don't know what would have happened had Monica stayed in the game.
0: But now she has an asterisk, in effect, beside her name in the tennis history books. And that was by design.
1: What Parsh set out to do... He did. He accomplished, and he served no time for it.
0: He said that he was first truly disturbed by what was going on when Monica, in effect, had the gall to come to Berlin and beat Steffi on home so- mm-hmm. on his home soil. That was in 1990. And Parsh says in his uh, interrogations that that's when he decided that something needed to be done. So this was like three years in the making that this guy yeah. was plotting to do something to harm Monica Sellers. So just think about the, the, the discourse surrounding Monica as being paranoid for her privacy and her secrecy for the entirety of her career pretty much up until that point when in fact we now know that a lunatic was out there planning to do her harm this entire time, just biding mm. and waiting for the right moment. And so the media, the sport media, plays so fast and loose with what they're able to do and say and write about people, that it's, it's actually disgusting. You're right in that it has gotten a little bit better in recent times, but these sport writers say all kinds of messed up stuff for sport in that era and previously. Mm-hmm. When somebody new comes on the scene, there's this natural tendency to then compare them to the old guard. In order to... To understand Monica Seles, you had to compare her to Martina Navratilova. And it helped that they played each other so many times. They actually had a full-throated rivalry. Yeah. (laughs) In the 90s, somehow. And that's something that we are grateful for, that we can go back and watch on YouTube. But when these sport writers got to their typewriters, they talk about Monica as the screeching starlet. And then I read somewhere in the same breath, referring to Martina Navratilova as the braying mare. Like, are you kidding me? That is wild to me that you could refer to a woman or an athlete of any stature, let alone Martina Navratilova at that time, as a braying
1: mare? Right. And I think it is something that happens less and less now. Yes. Because of the PC Brigade, as they're Mm -hmm. called. So Monaco was stabbed in Hamburg.
0: The fallout from that over the next two and a half years dominates a lot of the tennis headlines. In the interim, Steffi Graf and Aranja sanchez Vicario dominate women's tennis. They form uh, a rivalry that may not have happened if that incident had not happened in Hamburg Mm in 1993. And that is what kind of brought me to tennis. So I feel extremely conflicted about it because I was an Arantxa fan initially and those matches against Steffi Graf were some of my earliest memories of tennis. But what we want to talk about here now is what that process was like for Monica and the media narrative surrounding her. Will she? Won't she? When will she return to tennis?
1: Shortly after the incident, less than a month, Jerry Smith, you'll remember him from the Wimbledon withdrawal incident, the head of the WTA, organizes this hasty vote. 17 of the top 25 women voted whether or not Monica Seles should retain her number one ranking indefinitely. Everyone voted no, except for one abstention, Gabriella Sabatini, who Monica continues to hold in very high regard. It's no accident that Monica had such nice things to
0: say about her in her first autobiography. Given that she was the only one that abstained or did not vote to take away her number one ranking. Mm -hmm.
1: Monica writes that she was extremely hurt at the time. She said, quote, It felt like everyone benefited from the stabbing except me. They just wanted me to go away, it felt like. And this, of course, wasn't helped by the fact that Graf quickly returned to number one, that she won the next four Grand Slams, and that it seemed like her fellow players were happy to have her out of the game. That may be a bit harsh. I don't think anybody
0: was happy to have her out of the game, especially for those reasons. Maybe they were happy to benefit from a few extra dollars here or there. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Martina Navratilova spoke to when she was president of the WTA in 1995, trying to chart the way for Monica back into the game. She said, you know, one of the trickier parts of this whole process And why it's been difficult to get folks on board with this number one ranking thing is with Monica not in that position, other players who wouldn't necessarily have had the chance to be number one or go as deep into tournaments were able to. So like some folks may feel like you're taking money out of their pockets. It's very sinister to think about it that way. But Mm. at the end of the day, tennis is a sport and there's a lot of
1: money riding on this stuff. Right. It's just so it is so interesting to look back and read these stories because her peers on the tour come off as I mean, they don't look good no. in retrospect, they look incredibly petty. But this was an unprecedented event. Nobody knew how to handle it. The you know, the injury rules didn't apply, nobody knew what to do with the ranking, and a lot of people thought Monica was gonna be back really soon. Because the actual injury It could have been catastrophic because it was close to her spine, but the injury itself was not life-threatening and was not as catastrophic as it may have appeared based on how it happened.
0: Or how it could have been, if not for a millimeter here or there. And by
1: chance, she leaned forward to to reach for her towel, and a, a lot of things changed in that millisecond. She said in her first autobiography that had
0: the knife entered just a fraction to the left she could have been paralyzed so much could have been different
1: the point is some people were saying well she probably will miss Roland Garros but she'll be back for Wimbledon and this went on for two years this speculation
0: Monica says that the hospital in Germany is to blame in part she wrote about this in her autobiography and that the initial reports made it seem that it was not as serious as it was and so the initial reports, like you said, were like, well, she'll be back in a couple of weeks. And with that narrative taking off, it's like, well, do we need to actually deal with this right now? Is this as pressing an issue as it is? Right. Little did they know that Monica would suffer severe depression for the better part of two years and, trying to make her way longer. back onto the court. Yeah. Right.
1: The other thing that may have colored... The perception of this was that she did a press conference about a week after the stabbing. And when I watch it now, I can say she's so obviously in shock in this press conference. She's there in Vail, Colorado, because she wanted to get out of Germany as quickly as possible. She flew to Vail, Colorado with doctors she knew, and one of her doctors is there by her side. But she's she's giving a very calm and obviously subdued, but she's not a She's not overly emotional in this press conference. And it's so strange to watch this, knowing what's going what's going to come. You know she's going to be out for 27 months. You know she's going to suffer depression. She is going to suffer what will eventually be diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think the public didn't really know that much about at the time. And... It's fits and starts, right? Like, she trained with Jackie Joyner-Kersee in late 1993. She was planning on returning.
0: Said she was in the best shape of
1: her life. She went through these episodes of binge eating, serious depression where she wouldn't leave the house, and...
0: Nightmares where she would relive the incident where she couldn't not see
1: his face. Mm -hmm. So, like, those 27 months she was out was... You know, it's not linear. Like, nobody knows how to recover from an incident like this because it had never happened. And depression and PTSD is not something that you just sort of overcome uh, on this upward, gradual incline, right? And I think there wasn't a lot of understanding and empathy given to her, knowing what we know now. Because two things were at play. This narrative of Monica
0: as being a ruthless killer on court had been developed so fully. In those three years of her at the top that folks expected her to just come back and chase down those Tom and Jerry tennis balls Mm. as if she weren't a feeling human being with emotions and a soul that wouldn't be emotionally affected by this. Right. And when you watch her in that press conference, I view that as a direct response to everything that had gone awry with how she had handled the media in the preceding years and so when this speculation is running rampant she knew that she had to get ahead of the story and try and course correct a little bit when in fact she was in no
1: no she it was, was in no shape it was too soon yeah and after that over those two years she made something like four or five public appearances like so few she didn't feel prepared to face people and at the same time her father is diagnosed with cancer yeah Shortly after the stabbing, in 1993, he undergoes two surgeries, one for prostate cancer and one for stomach cancer. He tells Monica he doesn't want to fight anymore. This is a lot for anyone. But it seems like the Sellis family is collapsing,
0: right? All this is happening while the media doesn't know the full extent of it. They see this press conference that Monica is given shortly after the attack, but they don't know... She doesn't know the full extent of what's of what's to come and by extension they don't. Mm-hmm. She feels that she's on her way back at certain points and then she she suffers setbacks. Right. They but- don't know the emotional turmoil of having to deal with the attack in Hamburg and then the prospect of losing your father, your closest tennis confidant, the architect of your career, in a sense, the person who's been there mm-hmm. for you the most through this entire sell us ride in tennis and all this is happening behind the scenes and folks are still whiling out in the tennis press just speculating it's it's writing for sport not just writing about sport but writing for sport about sport
1: in monica's silence they fill it they say she was purposely trying to cash in on an insurance policy
0: they say i'm sure she'll be back and that when she's back she'll do it At a time that's most financially advantageous to her. Mm.
1: She's accused of sort of milking this time away to get a better deal with her move from Fila to Nike. She's sued by Fila in this period for breach of contract and fraud. They eventually dropped the fraud case, but not the breach of contract. She herself has her own civil case against the German Tennis Federation for not providing proper security. She doesn't win that. But people speculate that she was milking her absence to make a better case in her civil trial. While she's trying to get back on court, get herself
0: physically and emotionally okay to just live. Not not to come back to tennis, but okay to just be a human being again. She has to deal with the criminal case of Gunther Parch in Germany as well.
1: Right. Both of them. Because there's two. There's one trial and then there's an appeal. Uh, The judge... He is rather sympathetic with Parsh in both situations. He doesn't serve jail time because of the way that German law is structured. It didn't rise to the level of an attempted murder charge. It was causing bodily harm. So they didn't bring an attempted murder charge. And really, like his confession, his deposition was taken as word. And the second judge in the appeal said that Monica's absence was a determining factor in his ruling. Monica did not want to testify with her back to the court, with her back to her attacker. Logistically,
0: that is how the German courts
1: were set up at yeah. the time, where if Monica had gone to
0: that trial, she would have been sitting physically with her back to Gunther Parch, which is if if somebody can understand why that would have been a non-starter for her,
1: I I can right. I don't know what to say to you. I'm sort of dumbfounded by that whole thing. But after Many, many months of work with a therapist, of spending time with her family, of regrouping. Monica Seles decides she is ready to come back to the WTA tour. In spring of 1995, she enters into negotiations with the WTA. And none other than Martina Navratilova, who at that time is retired, but is the president of the WTA Players Council still. She had retired from singles. Martina Uh, reached out to her in that spring
0: and said you know, hey, I'm going to be in town. Do you want to, can you help me and be a a hitting partner for me? I need to like get my my stuff into gear kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And Monica at that time was finally in a place to instinctively say, yeah, sure, why not without thinking about it. And she got on court with her and they had a good hit. And Martina left that practice by saying, I have no doubt that Monica will be back because she is who she was.
1: Mm -hmm. But like Martina went there knowing that Monica needed help. She needed a push. It was an incredible act of kindness. Mm-hmm. One of
0: the many stories that we read throughout this whole process that, that stuck with us and, and this is the one I want to relay on this show. After that practice, Monica tells the story of Martina giving her a bracelet. And Monica says, No, no, no I can not I c I can't I can't take this. You know, it's a it's too much of a an expensive gift. Because it was like gold or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And Martina says, no, don't worry about it. If, if you want, you know, you can give it
1: back to me when you're back on tour. And she did. But as president of Players Council, Martina uh, floats this proposal. She says, install Monica as the co-number one for a temporary period to help her transition back on tour. It's unprecedented. It's never been done. But this is an extraordinary circumstance. And at first fellow players were like, hell no, absolutely not. But eventually this did pass. At the time the WTA rule was different, it was that when a player would return from injury, she would return 30 spots lower than her ranking when she went off. But this is clearly not a typical injury. So the WTA accepted this proposal, she came back famously as the co-number one player with Steffi Graf, enters her first tournament, at the Canadian Open in Toronto, Ontario, and wins. And goes on to win the next three. She beats Anka Uber, Yana Navatna,
0: Conchita Martinez, losing like, what, eight games the entire I tournament. Mean, it was it was a dominant performance. She makes it all the way to the U.S. Open final in her second tournament where she plays Steffi Graf. Monica had set point in that first set against Steffi Graf in the 1995 mm. U.S. Open final. She hit what she thought was an ace down the t and... I've scarcely seen Monica move with such verve and vigor on a tennis court. She was so pumped, thinking she won that first set. Mm. And then the ball was called out. And Monica went on to lose that first set tiebreak. She won the second set in a bagel. She was pissed. As she tells it, <laughs> she played that entire second set thinking about how she lost the first set, not being able to believe it eventually losing in three sets to Graf in the 1995 U.S. Open final, in really her big comeback to women's yeah, tennis.
1: Yeah, I didn't watch these things live. Like, I, I wasn't watching tennis at that age. I was, like, uh, nine or ten years old. Steffi looks so bad in a lot of these stories, and it's not entirely fair to Steffi because Monica, at that time, was getting the support. She was beloved because she was the triumphant return, but... Monica says Steffi went over and hugged her mother first, before anyone. She came to Monica, they had an embrace at the net, it was nice. And afterwards Steffi said this was the greatest victory of her life. And Monica calls that incomprehensible. And I too call that incomprehensible. I don't get it. For
0: me, I'm not here to fan the flames (laughs) of the celis Graf fandoms because one of I the know. things I learned most from doing this research is you cannot watch any Graf or Celis video from that time, even if they're not playing each other without some mention in the comments about what could have been for Monaco yes, yeah. or what definitely would have been regardless for Stephanie. <laughs> it's one of the most polarizing yeah. discussions in all of tennis. We'll touch on it a little bit, but I'm I do not want to get into making casting aspersions on steffi Graf for this episode.
1: Okay. okay. Okay, fine. 1996 in January. So we are we are squarely in the fourth. We're oh, in yes. the fourth era. Sorry, we of... didn't announce that. In the fourth incarnation of Selah's discourse. This is the comeback. This is when she becomes quote the most beloved woman in tennis. This is trying to recapture that fire that she had in the early 90s.
0: When she first came back, there was this pervasive narrative that with Steffi suffering from ongoing injuries and Monica looking like Monica of old, and with kind of a revamped serve, a serve that Mm -hmm. was more powerful than before, that Monica was primed to just run away with stuff.
1: Right. And I mean, she wins her first tournament back. She gets the US Open final. And in early nineteen ninety six, she wins the Australian Open. After winning her opening tournament of the season. So by
0: by the end of the Australian Open in nineteen ninety six, Monica has played four tournaments
1: in her comeback and she's won three of them. And in the ninety-six Australian Open, Graf did not play, but you start to see a new generation emerge, and it's so interesting. So of course, Sanchez, Martinez, Uber, Pierce. Sabatini, they're all there, but guess who else is there? Martina Hingis and Lindsay Davenport, who are beginning to become the great champions of the next generation. They weren't quite there yet.
0: And Venus and Serena
1: are almost there, right. but Venus not will quite yet. kind of debut in the following year.
0: And then we have Clysters and Enna coming shortly thereafter. So Monica comes back to... She comes back to a different tour. It was expected to be her tour. Right. With the way folks told it. But in effect, she came back to a vastly different game where the power tennis that she perpetrated and and implemented on the WTA tour had metastasized. And not only that, (laughs) that sounds uh, malignant. It had had grown and in different ways. And the physicality of the game had gotten different. And not only that, you had this kind of in-between era where the likes of Martina Hingis could dominate in
1: different ways as as well. Right. You had... At the same time as this powerful ball striker like Lindsay Davenport is starting to make her... You had this double-headed monster
0: of vastly different styles of tennis dominating the game.
1: And Monica had to try and navigate her way through that. So in that Australian Open, she's a total mess physically. Like her shoulder hurts... She's got a pulled ligament in her ankle. She had had the flu or some sort of virus throughout December. She was probably not in the best shape. And she wins the Australian Open. And what no one could have predicted at the time is that that was her final Grand Slam. Th- these are the contradictions, like the, the total mystery of Monica Sellis' career, that that was it. There were so many near misses, right? There were two more Grand Slam finals after that. The one that people really remember is the 98 final at Roland Garros, which she lost to Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Arancha winning her third Roland Garros title, matching Monica's Hellas. It was yet another
0: Grand Slam final where Monica lost after winning a 6-love middle set. She did that in her first Slam final back against Steffi in 95,
1: and also against Arancha in 98. Mm. So one of the stories of... This latter part of Monica's career is that she could outplay the best players, but often not for entire matches. She could still beat anybody.
0: Oh yeah, there was nobody yeah. that she couldn't beat. She beat Steffi Graf. She beat Martina Hingis. Her record against Martina is not great. It, she won like maybe thirty-three percent of those matches, but she still beat her five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe Venus Williams. She really did struggle right. against Venus Williams. She was she was one and nine against Venus Williams in effect one and ten with the, the Olympics loss in two thousand, but there was nobody that she didn't have at least one win against,
1: really. But you point out that despite all of the like could have ends and whatever, Monica Seles had a great career after nineteen ninety six. If you look at her comeback as a start of a second career, it was still excellent. Right. She won seventeen further titles. She won three Fed Cup titles. When you look at those Fed Cup wins, those, I mean, I would challenge you to find greater Fed Cup teams in history. Venus and Serena Williams, Lindsay Davenport, Monica Seles, Lisa Raymond and doubles. How do you get better than that? She won the bronze medal at the 2000 Olympics. Her dream during her hiatus was to get her US citizenship, which she and her mother did in 1994. She played Fed Cup and the Olympics for the United States. And out of 26 appearances in Grand Slams after her return, she made the quarterfinals or better 20 times. That's consistency. It may not be dominance, but it's it is a great career.
0: It just so happened that from the, the quarterfinals on, there were just so many players who gave you so many different looks and it seemed that Monica, for varying reasons, wasn't able to attain her physical best mm-hmm. fitness levels. Right in her second career.
1: We know now, based on her second memoir, she's very forthcoming about the struggles with a Needing Disorder, that she was unhappy, that she was grieving her father for years. And she just couldn't get it together, like mentally and emotionally. And she didn't do that until she took time away from the tour, effectively left the game in 2003, didn't announce her retirement to 2008, but the Monica Seles we know now is almost a different person. But the ways in which she was talked about
0: when she came back were so vastly different from her first career. Alexander Wolfe in Sports Illustrated wrote about Monica after losing the French Open final in 1998. Indeed, there was no noise more joyful than Celis's familiar high-pitched grunts during her matches and giggles after them. Previously, Man. you'd see that tandem, that combo written about her so many times, grunts and giggles. Literally, there was pretty much no article that could be written about Monica without you seeing grunts and giggles. And it was never done in a in an affirming way. But this was. Right. Folks were happy to have her back. They were happy to have her performing at this level, blitzing Martina Hingis at the peak of her powers in 1998 at the French Open, in the semifinals, to get to the final of the French Open, her favored surface... Her favorite tournament in all the land, and folks were just so happy to to have her
1: back. And in those moments, like how did we get here? Those things that reporters found annoying eight years before, six years before, are now seen as joyful—a joyful noise. She becomes a revered figure, and a lot of it is because, for a lot of her comeback—I mean, the comeback lasted nine years—she was no longer a dominant champion. She was still consistently ranked top four in the world. Yes, yes. And I will say her final full year on tour, she made three quarterfinals and one semifinal at the Grand Slams. The consistency was crazy. Go back and watch some of those matches. You may look at
0: her and say, well, wow, she's so woefully out of shape. But it's not really reflected on court in a lot of those matches. It may be reflected in being able to win seven matches over two weeks. But the actual eye test of her game in a
1: lot of those matches is still awe inspiring. She was st- okay. She was still beating Capriati. Remember, she and Capriati were supposed to be the next great rivalry. Mm-hmm. It never happened, obviously. But when Capriotti made her big comeback in the early 2000s, Celis was still beating her. And I remember watching one of the first matches that like made me a fanatic was Celis saving like six or seven match points against Capriotti. And Jennifer was so mad about the shrieking. Like, listen, you all played in 1990? Like, this was not an issue for you then. You won doubles <laughs> tournaments together you know, as 14-year-olds. Right. Like. You played one of the most legendary U.S. Open semifinals ever in 1991. The grunting is not new. Celis was always a factor. but And that is a huge credit to her. Mm-hmm. Because
0: one of the things that that folks are tempted to be left with, with thinking about Monica Seles in her second career is one of sadness, and one of regret, and one of stolen opportunities. When in fact, it can be read so differently as one of incredible resilience to put yourself out there over and over again and still perform at such a high level against such a varied opposition. There were so many different people to beat
1: (laughs) by the end of it. There were so many different people. We are talking about what is now considered by many the golden age of the WTA. And Monica Seles was
0: squarely there. And I don't think it's a black mark on her career that she only won one more Grand Slam after she came back. Mm. I think it's still entirely possible that the stabbing robbed her of countless other Grand Slams. Yeah. Absolutely. But the the only tragedy that i can see in in viewing her second career is the not knowing right that yeah. that's the part yeah. that's that's tough to to grapple with because what she actually did in her second career was pretty remarkable mm-hmm. considering the the added strife that she went through in that 1998 french open final she was playing weeks after her father had died
1: yeah the tournament started 11 days After her father's death.
0: And in that semifinal against Martina Hingis, that was some of the best tennis Monica played in her entire career to beat Martina Hingis.
1: Another interesting thing that was going on at this time, now that Celis had been elevated to this revered figure as a kind of a grand dam of the WTA, she's being cast in opposition to the young up-and-comers. It wasn't that long ago when she was the young up-and-comer, right? This is like a 24-year-old woman who is considered the old lady. How many how many hats must one woman wear <laughs> right. in her career? I actually laughed like out of cynicism reading some of this stuff. She was seen as a much-needed respite from this new wave, these brash young women like Hengis, like Venus, Kornikova. The way that Monica is contrasted with these young women, they're called the teenage arrivistes that they, quote, engaged in all kinds of woofing and adolescent gamesmanship, they took advantage of the rules, and Cellus could not be bothered with any such trivia. And that's from Alexander Wolfe, who we've quoted a lot in Sports Illustrated. This is in direct opposition to Martina Hingis, who was someone who was known for arguing line calls, for all sort of theatrical displays, they used Venus leaving the court to change her skirt as an example of like a non cellist behavior, which was weird. But it made me realize like there is nothing new under the sun. Monica was that person. You know, Monica was Martina Hingis at the time. That's how they talked about her. And now in 1998, 99, she's seen as the old lady, as, as the ever Navratilova, as the mature elder stateswoman of the tour, as, as really a young woman.
0: Meanwhile, they put the Hingises, the Kornikovas, the Williamses through the ringer, the way they did her. Right. And they'll do it again. And And it's something that we, in this past year, tried to guard against with Coco Gauff. Yes. Because there will always be a new presumptive queen on the WTA, a young, would-be starlet, would-be next best, that the press is just ready. You know, like... to to just whip them up in their
1: machine of mess. It's this all about Eve thing. It's Eve Harrington versus Margot Channing. And in the late 90s, Monica Seles got to be Margot Channing. And she wasn't before. And when I say like there's nothing new under the sun, like the only exception is that with Monica Seles, there was something entirely new. When she was attacked, that was something we had never seen. It's something we hopefully won't see again. But it is such a turning point in the history of our sport. And I think where I want to end, like I don't have much more to add, but there is something so new about what happened to her that 26 years later, we don't know how to talk about it.
0: It's like we put it in a box Mm -hmm. and hoped it would never happen again, whereas it's never really truly
1: been dealt with. And Monica Seles herself, because she had to survive and because she wants to live her life... She has dealt with it, and she has learned to move on and accept the what ifs and forget about what could have been. But tennis hasn't. And that's something that that stuck out for me as we were doing this research. Research is like the sport has not has not reckoned with what happened. We don't know how to talk about it. We only know how to talk about it in in the terms of, of like Stan Wars of a, a dream deferred or of things that didn't happen that could have happened or and, talking about like. Who is better for sports? Right, like you know, and like
0: getting into these unnecessary wars about who's
1: better. Mm-hmm. And so, like Monica Sellis in 2019, I see as a challenge to us <laughs> to be better, be bigger, be better. I don't know. Maybe I'm being like fake profound here, but or sentimental, which yeah, is allowed. Yeah, sentimental. Because in this environment where there is nothing new, that was something new. That was something that to this day. Is incomprehensible.
0: And to this day we don't feel tennis tournaments and tennis authorities
1: have done enough to protect players. No. You see players walking through crowds on on golf carts, you know, you can get into tournaments frequently with very little security. So, you know, if you go to the right gate, sometimes you can just kind of waltz through. It's uh it's amazing to me like how flippant all that can be considering what this sport is. Like, anyone who's a fan of tennis knows what happened to her. So where are we? After after all this research, after two hours of talking about Monica... I'm thankful for the trip down memory
0: lane and the the learning that I did about an era of tennis that was deficient for me and to be able to to situate Monica's career better and to get a better understanding of just how great and vast her contributions are to the sport and not just understand the Monica that I didn't get to watch live, but also better understand the Monica that I did.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope like where we've come, where I've come is like understanding players as more fully rounded human beings, which is like a constant work in progress, right? Martina Navratilova, for example, the way she's going on now about trans athletes in sport, you're tempted to look at her in very one specific way, but she is complex. She is full of contradictions. And one more thing. To me, the reason that Monica Sells was so charismatic in the early 1990s is because she had a little bit of edge. There was a little bit of toughness. Je ne sais quoi. Mystery. There was a like the slightest bit of meanness that made her incredibly compelling. Or a little bit of a a wink. Yeah. So remember to make your heroes complicated. Thank you for listening.
0: This has been a month-long project and process for us. It's been with us over the holidays. We are relieved to have the recording (laughs) over, to be frank. If Uh, you're still here, thank you. It will be our longest episode ever at this point. I don't think there's uh, enough that we could cut in the editing process to stop it from being. I
1: think it's warranted. ...given the topic. Mm. Stay tuned, our our genuine debut of Season 6 of the 2020 Bodysurf season will begin soon. Till then, my name is Jonathan, you can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore
0: John. And I'm James, at J M R on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at the TheBodysurf on Twitter, on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the show, we've done similar things in the past, check out our Pride episode check out our pre-open era episode thanks for listening till next time